last week on the program, we heard an interview with the designer Tony Fry. We talked of the need for a kind of green design, a new commitment from designers and industry to produce objects which were ecologically sound and economically realistic. Dr. Nigel Hellyer is also concerned about the relationship between design and industry. And his starting point is what he says are the false promises and expectations of the Industrial Revolution. Hellyer is critical of a world where humans dominate nature and take the products of science and manufacturing for granted. He's probably best known for his public architectural works on this sort of theme, like the bells he placed in the Olympic Park at the 1988 Seoul Olympics, and his gallery installations in California, Perth, Melbourne and Sydney. His current show is entitled Mute in Corktown, Sweet Warm Breath of Science, and is on at Sydney's Performance Space Gallery. There, Hellyer explores the relationship between culture and nature in three large sculptural pieces, which he's constructed out of timber, steel, perspex, and found objects. Installations also demonstrate Hellyer's preoccupation with sound, which he's built into his sculptures using various mechanical devices. For example, in the ambient noise of the urban environment is the inspiration for the largest work in the exhibition, a metal and plywood saxophone, which fills an entire room. When Matthew Leonard caught up with the artist, Nigel Hellyer was lighting a gas ring burner which hangs in the bell of the enormous saxophone. Thank you. Is this the sweet warm breath of science? Well, that's really, I, I suppose the title runs for the, the whole show because in a sense the smaller pieces in the second gallery are related to this, this big one in, in that the, the show, or in fact my work in general as a thematic, takes the notion of the relationship between, say, sort of art culture, or poetic culture, and technical industrial culture, and uses a sort of um, metaphoric process to bridge the two, in fact to fuse the two together. So um, the, this giant saxophone-like object is, I'm, I'm sort of looking at the, the notion of say the 20s hot jazz, which uh, for me had this image of, the, of a bodily, biological, warm, in fact sexualized sort of breath, leaving the body and making sounds to the instrument, and the kind of oversized object we have here, which is more like a um, jet engine or rocket, rocket tube with diminutive afterburners inside. And uh, I suppose the irony of it all is that the whole thing makes this kind of white noise, um, which it's in a, in a sense a little bit like a waterfall if you hear it from a distance. Um, the composite of all the possible frequencies in that one. Yeah, so it's kind of a blanket, so often quite a natural noise is white noise. And uh, so here it's linked to the PA system with the boom mic. And we have on these speakers behind us the thing you most, uh, you try and avoid most in electrical systems, which is hiss. You know, <laughs> you'll have hiss on the radio if you hear this too. Tell me a bit about your background, Nigel. Have you, did you come from a visual arts background or a, a sound background, a music background, perhaps? No, uh, the one thing um, I always regret is my mother never forced me to play the piano. 
So, no, I came from a, a, a fairly straight English art education, kind of a seven-year hall, going through a, a kind of design school foundation, which is based on the Bauhaus, through uh, sculpture, first degree in Liverpool, and then I did three years research in the, at the Royal College in London, which actually was in a sort of an experimental studio, which was basically TV, uh, audio, and electronics. So I've had a fairly mixed, and, and also I suppose in some ways a fairly technical background. I was going to be a scientist at school. I was training to be a marine biologist. And um, so a lot of my interests lie in areas of sort of science and history and things like that. And I suppose a lot of the imagery I've been using and a lot of construction techniques really relate quite strongly to notions of the Industrial Revolution and subsequent technical revolutions since then. What is it about the Industrial Revolution particularly that you think is, has become such a rich source of, of material for you? Well, I, th I think in many ways it's um, left, left to a process of intellect rather than one of a, a kind of bodily response to my, my background. I mean, I grew up in England and that was the, obviously the, the kind of birth of the Industrial Revolution. And also, I suppose, the skeletons of the Industrial Revolution still manifest there more obviously than here. Yeah, it's basically my landscape in, in many ways, my, my historical and urban landscape. And it's where that landscape meets, an, as it were, the kind of natural or cultural landscape, which is, for me, the most interesting thing, and to see the, the, the fusion and construction of a culture through the, the mixture of industry, culture, and biology, as it were. What sort of product is that producing, do you think, this, this composite of scientific and industrial materials and ideas and presumably some sort of artistic sensibility? Well, I think one of the things I'm, I'm interested in working on is the kind of this a series of false promises that, they, as it were, the Enlightenment through the Industrial Revolution solutions, uh, notions of the utopia, perfect societies, and they're, they're obviously um, not viable either politically or ecologically. And I think some of the pieces in this show address that notion of the failure of one straight scientific answer and the kind of promise of the Enlightenment. Um, I, I tend to think that the, the real solution lies in a much more contaminated mix. That's my kind of uh, resolve to work, I suppose, in a metaphoric way between the two rather than the one or the other solely. Well, what do you mean by contaminated? Do you mean something that has a lot more compromises in it? Not necessarily compromises. I think of it more in the constructive terms of hybrids, mixtures. And I think in some ways Australia or, uh, say, America has, has come forth with incredibly good examples of cultures that can be very vibrant, specifically because they're mixed. I often I was doing a lot of travelling, and uh, I'm very familiar with a lot of European countries, and I now find, say, European societies actually quite boring compared to what, what might be seen as the second world fringe, fringe cultures where you have large mixtures of, of social groups, of attitudes, of political expressions, and cultural forms. Like Australia? Like Australia, like, uh, like LA, like New York. They're, they're all melting pot. And in a sense, I think the world, in general, culturally, is, is not Macquarie's global culture, but I'm not sure that that kind of instantaneous electronic culture will ever exist. I'm much more interested in the notion of a culture of really very varied regions and interchanging regions, but not a kind of bland global McDonald's culture. So I think there's, there are differences in the notion of a, an international global culture. Some are bland and some are very, very uh, variegated. I'll go to the latter. 
let's get back to this idea of your interest in sound and what sort of process do you go through in, in looking for ways in which you can exploit the sound possibilities of a particular structure, a kinetic, a kinetic structure, and look for ways in which you can, you can develop sounds out of that? Okay, well, I, I suppose it breaks down, I think, into about three things. It breaks down into the notion of sound in an instrument, so be it, albeit a giant one, say in this show, sound within an, an architectural, architonic space, the kind of relationships of frequencies in a building or in an urban space, and then I suppose the last category would be sound on tape or transmission either in, in radio or um, within the speaker systems of, say, an architecture. So they're, they're kind of all mixed together. And um, last year I did a lot of research. I, I made a, a long program for the, for the listening room on the ABC called Bell Transfer. And at that time I did a lot of research and quite a lot of writing around the idea of sound in the sound environment, mainly in the urban situation. And every time I, I went out on recording forays, I found I got this heavy drone, percussive noises like engines, as we can hear in the background now, planes, ships. And I started writing about, I wrote stories about that urban environment. And I think a lot of, the, um, a lot of my interest lies in a fairly research-based, or based on my personal experience, really, by calling that research, and then looking at structures which sort of represent that, like the saxophone here with its hits. It's not a melodic musical thing. It's, a, it's an urban or white noise generator. It's a kind of a flat tone. It's much closer to an engine than a, a musical piece. And the bells I've been producing, uh, they're either silent or have a voice text built within them, things like that. Um, which, which talk about the condition, the, the sonic condition or the lack of it. So I, I see it as a very long-term research project on, on um, my part, and the things I'm going towards now will be loading sounds, either mechanical sounds or, or tape-based sounds, into urban structures, rather like a viral system attacking, uh, attacking an urban structure, looking at buildings as vascular systems, their air conditioning, their telephones, their intercoms, I proposed uh, such a piece for a destroyer in England where I used the whole ship system for a kind of massive interrelated sound text. The ship is a, a vascular body, the artwork is a viral attack, as it were, or a viral takeover of the system. So I think that's the way I'm going to try and go in the sort of tape base. The, uh, the other works I intend to carry on, probably I'll make a piece with 20 small saxophones as a waterfall piece, and I've, I've got a very big interest in things like drums and bagpipes, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do with those yet. But I can, I can see a, a large semi-organic bagpipe coming along fairly soon. The drum beat and the chant are a sublimation of the thunderclap and the howling of the storm. This is a husbandry of noise the erratic and unpredictable bellows of nature chained to time, to rhythm and meter, a raftless song floating in chaos. The foundry and the smelter are sublimation of the drumbeat and the chant. The song is now forbidden on the shop floor. In its place is a silence totally occupied by the continuous explosion of the furnace and the reports of the transformation as nature is recreated upon demand. Here concepts are brought to their ultimate conclusion. Noise equals power and power produces noise. Whispers could now operate only as a subversion, but here to whisper is to shout above the din, 
people in the face of a comrade who can no longer hear, for whom birdsong is a charge of memory. This idea of bringing the sounds of the urban environment into the gallery, it really goes against most people's expectations of gallery spaces and exhibition spaces, doesn't it? They go there because they feel, in a way, it's an insulated environment and they mm. can leave all of those sorts of ambient sounds behind them and go into some sort of artificial space. Yeah, I think that's um, a part of the legacy of, of art being a, a separate and, and, and sort of a higher, if you like, activity and the artist is seen as some sort of um, either a shaman or a provider of luxury objects or certainly not um, certainly not a co-worker or critic, I think. But that idea, I think, is, is being eroded fairly rapidly by simply by the kind of fact that in our society, it seems that in many ways, commerce has replaced culture anyway. But um, I if you look at the um, Biennale, which is currently showing, that's very, very evident that the what is seen to be culture is in fact mass culture and not high culture. You know, the, many of the works using the notion of ready-made um, industrial products and packaging as a, as a sort of metaphor. All the icons of pop culture. Yeah, but it's, it's the icons of pop culture were largely representations of mass culture, but you now find that in many of the works they're not representations, they are the actual objects of mass culture. So uh, it's a very, very frontal in that respect. What about working in, in open spaces in what are traditionally public domains? So tell me, how have, you, how have you approached working in the open air or doing large commissions in, in, in public squares and public spaces? Well, it becomes very complex when you want to work with, with objects which are either interactive or have elements which do things, which move or make sound. Um, normally, you have to go for a much more of a, a passive situation and um, I think my, my central approach has always been to think of instead of making a thing it's been to make a place to make a, a situation event place if you call it like that and I suppose the best example of that would be uh, the, a very large piece I made for the Korean Olympics in Seoul in 1988 which was um, a site some 22 metres by 22 by about 6.5 high which contained four huge industrial bell, crucible, projectile objects. Um, and although they were, were passive in the sense they weren't motorized or had soundtracks, they, they were like classical Eastern bells that you could hit from the outside. They were some three meters high and weighed 3,000 kilos, so they sounded much more like a gasoline tank was being hit or something like that, very low frequency industrial sound. But I found going back there for the opening of the games, the, the actual sculptural site, if you would call it that, was being very well used as a picnic place, a kind of hanging out place, and people were doing their kind of karate kicks on the bells, rather making them making them work. So I say the central the central attitude is the idea of creating a place rather than an object or a thing. So uh, the place then has implications of architecture, of architectural sort of interaction. Um, and the possibility of actually being in or travelling through it and experiencing it in a very... Um, I suppose the other criteria is that notion of experience from a very bodily way through time, not simply having a, a, a view of distance and looking at it through the eyes. I think uh, 
we live in our bodies, or we ought to live in our bodies as much as we live in our heads. And uh, one of the one of the um, in a sense missions of sculpture is is to help people realise that that cultural activity is isn't simply an intellectual, critical, rational. It is that, but it's also uh, an emotional, a bodily, somatic experience, and those things need to be fused if we're to basically be able to act as human beings. When you talk about this fusing of art and architecture, for example, is it the architects who are looking to the repertoire of, of art and inverted commas for, for greater possibilities, or is the pressure coming from the artists who want to be more involved in making more humane, creative and interesting environments? Um, I think the situation in Australia at the moment is, is really rather a tragedy in that we've been very slow to grasp the idea that um, we should be filling our urban spaces and, and perhaps even some of our more rural spaces with not simply functional architecture or, or even dysfunctional architecture, but that we need a much greater variety of cultural products, cultural forms. And um, one of the typical ways of dealing with this is the 1% for the arts programs that a lot of European, Asian and American cities have. Um, Seoul in Korea has 1% uh, for any building over 11 storeys high. So you have cities which are full of not simply sculptures as uh, appendages stuck in front of a building for the kudos of it, but buildings which are actually have artists working with designers and artworks which are integrated with architecture. And I think that's the only sensible approach. The application of an artwork to a building when it's finished as a kind of ornamentation is uh, frankly quite a foolish and not, not satisfying for the artist either. I don't think it's a good relationship. So I think we need to have a much more synthetic approach where we, we team design things, where artists are part of the design process from the start. And at the moment, I think in Australia, we have we do have genuine desire from both the side of architects and planners and of uh, artists to engage in that process. It's simply that the infrastructure we have is primitive, to say the very least. from Nigel Hellyer's radiophonic essay, Bell Transfer, which was broadcast last year on the ABC's Listening Room program. The artist was talking to Matthew Leonard. Mute in Talktown, the sweet, warm breath of science, this exhibition is at the Performance Space Galleries till Sunday. In his spare time, Nigel Hellyer is the head of the sculpture studio at the Sydney College of the Arts, but later in the year he's taking up a three-month residency with a bathroom fitting factory in North America. And bathroom fittings play a big role in our next story. Art is easy is the slogan for the current Sydney Biennale, quoting a painting by Giuseppe Chiari. 
And the theme adopted by director René Bloch is that of the ready-made. Ideas first proposed by Marcel Duchamp, Man Ray, and other Dadaists of the 20s. These New York Dadaists made art out of bicycle wheels, urinals, and existing objects. Man Ray, for example, exhibited an iron with a ruff of spikes down its surface, and one of Duchamp's ideas was to use a Rembrandt as an ironing board. The Sydney Biennale presents work by more than 160 artists. How they all use the notion of the ready-made. Critic Julie Ewington and Louise Marry, who is assistant to the Biennale director René Bloch, are talking here with Julie Weeks. I'm wondering, first of all, having looked at the Biennale, which seems huge, um, I'm wondering, though, how the strategy of the ready-made stands up 60 years after Marcel Duchamp first employed it. I mean, he was using it as a sort of critique-of-the-art object, really. Has it lost its power with the right... Well, you wouldn't think so sometimes if you walked into the National Gallery and saw people who weren't used to the strategy confronting the Duchamp Six Chronicles project that they lived down there. And also another work illustrated in the catalogue was the um, Enigma of the 